Our second reading this morning is from Young Orson, The Years of Luck and Genius on the Path to Citizen Kane by Patrick McGilligan. Like many American cities, Kenosha proved to be a hotbed of labor agitation in the early years of the 20th century. Unrest dogged all the major factories, Simmons Manufacturing, Chicago Kenosha Hosiery, and N.R. Allen's Sons Leather Goods. But the city's brass and metal workers were the most comprehensively organized, with thousands of members employed by the Jeffrey Company, Chicago Brass, Bain Wagon, and Badger Brass. Thanks to its progressive history with the union, Badger Brass stood out as a bellwether for potential union action. Trouble came to a head in 1907. The militant, unskilled workers walked out in a job action. Sympathetic lamp makers and buffers joined the incipient strike, and soon the Badger Brass Factory found itself at a standstill. Dick Wells spoke publicly on behalf of the management and represented the company in talks with the strike committee. Presented with fresh union demands for reduced hours with higher pay, the company again refused to budge, and this time management announced the weak economy was forcing the company to revert to the 10-hour workday for nine hours pay. All but 60 of the 300 Badger Brass workers marched out of the factory. Badger Brass showed an iron fist. Management drew the line, declaring Badger Brass an open shot from then on. Strikers and picketers were found missing from their jobs. Strikers and picketers found missing from their jobs would be discharged and not hired back. Moreover, if the strike persisted, the Kenosha factory would be shut down and all manufacturing moved to the New York branch. Dick Wells joined the company's efforts to intimidate militants. One night, he and a group of friends and business partners forcibly entered the home of a hardline unionist and dragged him off to the county jail. After the union lost momentum the following cold winter, local strike leaders and known radicals were passed over in the slow rehiring process at Badger Brass, while others returned to jobs that now paid 10 to 12% less than they had before the strike. The union had been destroyed. Dick Wells had fought as hard on behalf of the company as radicals had for the union, and he became a hero to the industrialists of Kenosha and other factory owners trying to hold the line across America. Thank you, Patty. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to share that, that last reading you heard as the intro to this sermon because of its connection into Kenosha, and for better or worse, to this congregation. Now, the labor strike of 1907 coincided with the construction of this building financed in part by Dick Wells, president and founder of Badger Brass, who along with his wife had been members here since 1904, and who would later enroll their second son, the futurely famous young Orson Wells, in the church's Sunday school. 
But something else was happening here in 1907 in this very building. Yes, it was then that the fiery minister of this church, then known as the First Unitarian Society of Kenosha, the Reverend Florence Buck, would preach from right up here about the moral obligation we held to support the workers' rights and indeed unions themselves. And incidentally, we also owe a debt of gratitude to Orson's mother, Beatrice Wells, who along with Reverend Buck would orchestrate an elaborate theatrical interpretation of the popular novel, proceeds from which would go to support the construction of this church. That's pretty fascinating, right? Other than Diane, who knew this history? <laughs> oh, Diane didn't even know. I found something out that Diane didn't know about Kenosha history. That's fantastic. <laughs> September 2nd. Right. <laughs> so, of course, tomorrow is, is Labor Day, a day that came to commemorate the Pullman, the Pullman strike and the subsequent massacre of 14 Pullman workers at the hands of U.S. Marshals in May of 1894. But the holiday has arguably descended from its memorial roots to a less-than-solidarity-encouraging weekend, replete with barbecues and beach trips, weather permitting, furniture and late-model car sales events, rain or shine, and a back-to-school bonanza of runaway, enthusiastic consumerism. Perhaps even more ironic for us here in Wisconsin is that this state, which as we'll hear, has been at the forefront of progressive labor rights and indeed progressive ideals in general, has in one short decade been completely converted to one of the most conservative governments in the country. Which of course begs the question, how did this happen? And what do we do about it? Well, the author of our first reading, native Wisconsinite turned New York journalist Dan Kaufman, writes not only a comprehensive history of the progressive movement in Wisconsin, but also identifies when and how Wisconsin changed course. And what's so intriguing about this shift is that though it seemed abrupt to many of us, especially those of us who were shocked by the success of Governor Walker and his recall and President Trump in the polls in 2016, it was actually decades in the making and this shift was entirely calculated by a select few elites, many if not most of whom were not even Wisconsin residents. But to understand this shift, we must, must first recognize what made Wisconsin so progressive in the first place. Now, the Scandinavian immigrants who were the first white settlers of Wisconsin in the early to middle 19th century were vehemently anti-slavery and held on to a more community-focused mindset than some of the more established communities along the eastern uh, seaboard. A later influx of German immigrants fleeing a failed proletariat revolution at home only increased this sentiment. 
It was, in fact, a small group of these abolitionist Wisconsinites who built from the remnants of several failed political parties a new movement dedicated to the benefit of all citizens and who vehemently opposed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and indeed the institution of slavery itself. Meeting in Ripon, Wisconsin, at the site of the newly founded Ripon College, a mere handful of former Whigs, abolitionist Democrats, and free soilers created, anyone? The Republican Party, right? And this was a party envisioned as a party for the people and against any power or policy, including slavery, that hindered the rights or opportunities of any American. My, how the times had changed. <laughs> but those first years of the Republican Party were indeed revolutionary. One of the principal founders, Alan Bovey, reached out to renowned newspaper publisher and journalist and Unitarian Horace Greeley, who embraced the new party and promoted its ideals. It was partially Greeley's writings, combined with Unitarian minister Theodore Parker's published abolitionist sermons, that inspired Abraham Lincoln to join the newly formed Republican Party in the first place. And within a few short decades of the end of the Civil War, progressivism was as strong in Wisconsin as anywhere else in the country. University of Wisconsin President John Bascom instituted sweeping change at the institution, claiming moral and governmental obligation to the freedom of education and the right of all people to be educated. Protection is admitted by all to be the first duty of government, he writes. But this protection is not that of the productive classes against the depredative classes, simply. It is not society versus criminals, merely. But it is also the protection of the weak, universally and broadly, against the strong. Baskin would continue, wealth means power, and power and wealth combined mean the relative subjugation of the many. The let alone policy in America is little more than an irrational conviction that public interests will take care of themselves with no watchfulness on the part of the people, and that public prosperity is necessarily included in private gains. End quote. But perhaps even more influential than Bascom himself would be one of his earliest and most dedicated students, Robert Fighting Bob La Follette. La Follette's eventual 19-year tenure as Wisconsin governor would see the first individual and corporate income tax, the first workers' compensation system, Railroad rate reform, direct legislation, municipal home rule, open government, a minimum wage, the first one of its kind, nonpartisan elections, an open primary system, and the direct election for the first time of U.S. Senators. It was also during his tenure that the labor movement began in earnest in this state. 
and from Governor La Follette's death in 1925 until the beginning of this century, Wisconsin was a model of progressive values and many of these original Wisconsin ideas directly informed Roosevelt's New Deal. By the end of World War II, industry and organized labor were booming here in Kenosha and around the state. Many of these were union shops, but unfortunately, the same industrial boom that accompanied the war profited another non-union shop, the Milwaukee-based Allen Bradley Corporation. Who here has heard of Allen Bradley? Wow, that's so crap. Allen Bradley held the patents too and produced some of the first electrical switches for machinery. Their relationship first with the automotive manufacturing industry and eventually military development netted the two entrepreneur owners an insane amount of money. They shrewdly set up a foundation dedicated to humanitarian causes, but began instead a campaign that amounted to what one New York Times journalist called weaponized philanthropy exclusively supporting conservative think tanks and McCarthy-era anti-communist organizations. Though modest at first, the company was bought by a defense contractor in the 1980s, and the foundation benefited greatly from the sale, and now the Bradley Foundation is a tax-exempt charitable organization with assets in excess of eight hundred and fifty million dollars. The founders were first enraged by the labor movement and successfully crushed a workers' strike at the Milwaukee factory in the 1930s. And the Bradley Foundation perpetuated the ire of the founders throughout its history, but all the more so after the dramatic increase in funding after Alan Bradley was sold. Throughout the 1980s to present day, the Bradley Foundation, which again is in Milwaukee, has partnered consistently with groups such as Americans for Prosperity, the Wisconsin Policy Institute, the Koch Brothers Foundation, and the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. The Wisconsin Policy Institute was responsible in no small part to the school voucher program in Milwaukee, that would serve as a model for other municipalities to reduce budgets by gutting support for the public school system. ALEC helped draft nearly verbatim 2011's Act 10, which eliminated collective bargaining for state employees, despite large-scale protests and peaceful occupations of the Capitol in Madison, and several illegal actions by the Republican legislative majority. Americans for Prosperity, in conjunction with a couple of these other groups, helped push through Wisconsin's voter ID law with the express written intent of reducing the number of potential Democratic voters. Perhaps the final straw upon the back of the progressivism of Bouvet, Bascom, and La Follette was the redistricting that happened again in 2011, immediately prior to the recall elections of Walker and a number of Wisconsin legislators. Drafted off-site in a closed office building in Madison, the district maps were redrawn 
again, with the express intent of disenfranchising Democratic votes and all but guaranteeing a perpetual Republican majority in the Wisconsin legislature. Republican members of Congress were able to see a preview of the map prior to voting on it, but not Democrats. And all who viewed it ahead of time were compelled to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Now, all of this, of course, is compounded by the landmark and devastating Citizens United ruling of 2010, which allows corporate money to flow with virtually no accountability or limit from corporations and wealthy individuals to specific candidates and initiatives. It's kind of depressing when you think about it this way. But there is some good news. The good news is that ultimately the fate of Wisconsin is not entirely sealed in the Scott Walker, Paul Ryan Tea Party mode it has entered for the better part of this current century. While the right to work, school vouchers, and voter ID laws have indeed been copied by other states, so too did the protests of Act 10 in Madison lay the groundwork for Occupy Wall Street and a host of other grassroots organizing like Black Lives Matter, and Dr. Barber's revitalization of Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign. And despite the incredible inertia and the political tide that is sweeping this country further and further apart, the labor movement and universalism have already given us an answer. While Walker and Ryan have been caught bragging to their billionaire donors about their ability to divide and conquer the labor forces, their words, their words, we know differently. We know that there can be no racial justice without economic justice, no environmental justice without gender equality, no immigrant justice without care for our veterans, and so on. Solidarity is not just a rallying cry, it is the fundamental principle of organizing, any organizing, against injustice. It is also the fundamental principle of universalism. That there is no them, there is no us, simply we the people, we the beings, in this place, in this time. Which points to another underlying universalist truth that if all people are counted, and all people matter, then no person is without responsibility to the whole. Now we can fall into the trap of dismissing Trump supporters and paternalism, pity them that they know not the extent of the havoc they have unleashed. But we cannot defeat injustice if we don't include everyone, not just those who voted for Hill or Bernie in our plans for the future. We know that we must support public education for rural as well as urban areas. We know that healthcare is important to everyone, regardless of where one lives. We know that the pressing crisis of climate change will affect conservative farmers as well as the liberal elite. Again, there's no us, there's no them, only we, 
who strive for life and love and justice. Resisting the few in power who want to stay there while uplifting everyone else is what being a Wisconsinite and a Universalist is all about. I certainly hope that this holiday we can remember our past, mourn our present regressions, and be rededicated to an even more progressive future than our ancestors ever envisioned. So, happy Labor Day, everyone. Blessed be. And I'll <coughs>